The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping Him this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for this opportunity that we have now to worship You. God, I pray that we would worship You in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that You would work mightily and miraculously in us and through us. That as we just sang that song, I love to tell the story, the story of Jesus and His love, that God, You would work in us to help us also love to tell that story. That we would remember what Christ has done for us, and in light of that, we would share that with those around us who do not know You. God, I pray and ask that You'd work miraculously in us as we remember that story this morning, recognizing and remembering that those who know it so well, namely us, Love to hear it again and again and again, for it is such an encouragement to us. And God, I pray that you'd just knit our hearts together in love, help us to uh, not only be hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. And God, I just pray for your blessing upon this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we're getting close to the end. Uh, We're now in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. We'll be uh, looking today at a message called Talking to Men About God. So last week was talking to God about men, namely praying for the lost. And today is talking to men about God, namely sharing the gospel or evangelizing the lost. And as we've worked our way through the book of Colossians, Paul, we remember that he's been writing this letter to this church in Colossae. The church that he has not yet been to, he hasn't been there to visit them, but he knows of their love for Christ and he knows that they are indeed believers in the Gospel, that they have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But there's an enemy who has crept into the church or enemies who have crept into into the church that are distracting them from the pureness of the Gospel, that are distracting them from the pure and simple Gospel message, that though they were all sinners, that Christ died for their sin. That He took their place, that He came into this world, lived a perfect life, took their place on the cross, taking their their sin upon Himself, taking their punishment, and He died. And then He was raised on that third day, showing that He defeated death. And that through that trust in Him, through turning away from their sin and trusting in Christ and His perfect sacrifice, that they can be made right with God. And these false Teachers come in and say, yes, that's all true, but you need to add these other things to that Gospel message. And Paul says again and again, Jesus is enough. And now as we get to Colossians 4, 5, and 6, he wants us, he wants the the church in Colossae, and ultimately us, to bring that message to others. That Jesus, in His Gospel, that Jesus is enough. So if you'll look at Colossians 4, we'll actually start reading at verse 2. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word, 
so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So as we work through our text this morning, and verses 5-6 through in particular, I want to draw out five principles that should guide us in witnessing to the lost. So we have five principles. And, and Bill's already looking at me going, five, you normally have two or three sermon points, and we don't get out until 12.15, it's Communion Sunday, and now today you have five. So there are a lot of words on these pieces of paper, so we need to move fairly fast. But before we, talk, before we bring out these five points, you see, I also want to talk about the need for sharing the Gospel with the lost. I want to talk about the importance of sharing our faith. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are His representatives here on this earth. And as such, we are called to share the Gospel. As Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Those are hard words. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That by being a Christian, you have been made a missionary. You may not be an effective one. I may not be an effective one, but we are called nonetheless to be one. So let's look at a few Scriptures that reference or testify to this fact. Acts 4, verses 13-20 through says this. Acts 4, verses 13-20. through Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, uneducated and untrained, right? Not, not just church leaders that are called, to share the Gospel, but untrained, uneducated men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And so the same should be true of us. That when we uh, stand before men, they say, here are these untrained, uneducated men, but there's no question something has happened in their lives. They have been with Jesus, and we have seen that, that a miracle has taken place in their lives. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge." For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking. And if we have seen Jesus, if we have been transformed by Jesus, the same must be true of us. I cannot stop speaking. There are a few songs that tug at my heart like the song that we just sang. 
For we should love to tell the story. Not loathe to tell the story. Or as Paul told the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17-20, through If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. As though Christ were making an appeal through us. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, God calls believers to Himself and makes them ambassadors. He gives them the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Timothy 1.8 says this, Paul, in speaking to Timothy, says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me. Don't be ashamed of the testimony, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel. He says, because it's the power of God. Join with me in sharing this Gospel, because that's what we are called to do. Or if we think back just a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Radek Kolejik Shared, he uh, shared Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. There is no end. The end is when Jesus comes back. But until then, we must continue to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Right? And we sometimes we use that as an excuse to not evangelize. Shame on us that we would say, well, the passage says I must make disciples. It doesn't say that I just go and make decisions. No, it doesn't. But it starts with sharing the gospel so that people will receive Christ and then baptizing them and continuing to teach them. We don't say, well, my job is to teach people to obey. My job is never to share the gospel and to to seek the lost. Certainly, as a pastor, I can relate to that. I know that my primary job primary role in the church is to build up the saints, to encourage the saints. But I certainly have every bit as much of a responsibility to share the Gospel with the lost as every one of you. And you know what? Every one of you has the same responsibility as me. So we are undoubtedly called to share the Gospel. Now, not all in the same way. So when I say you're all responsible just like I am, we don't all do it in the same way. We know Scripture says He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Pastor so while being a preacher or evangelist is the public proclamation of God's Word, that might be reserved for somebody who's specifically called to do so. I don't think everybody should do that who is not called to do that. I think that we don't step out and say, I'm going to serve God in this way, though I haven't been called in this way. Not everybody should be a teacher, Scripture says. Not everybody should be an evangelist, but we are all called to evangelize. See, every believer, that is every follower of Jesus, is called to be a witness. For I must, I must tell the world what Jesus did for me. So with that understanding, 
Let's look at five principles, right? We'll get to our five principles regarding the sharing of our faith that, can, that I believe can be drawn from Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Number one, as God's representatives, we are called to live wisely. So as God's representatives, we are called to live wisely. Verse 5 begins by saying this, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. The Greek more literally says, walk in wisdom toward those outside. And the reference to those outside clearly refers to those who are not followers of Jesus. Those who are outside of His church. As Bill referenced earlier, I purposely try to remember to say, welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. Because we are the church. The building is not the church. We are the church. We are Harmony Bible Church, and we gather here together for worship. And there are those who are outside of the church. You see, you're on one side or the other. You're not kind of in the church. You're either in the church or you're outside of the church. It's one or the other. It's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. Where am I? I so some of the things that come into my head sometimes. There's a, re, there's a reason I don't write them down when I'm studying, but sometimes they still come, in, come out of my mouth when I'm speaking. <clears throat> so, what, so what does Paul mean, I guess is the question. What does Paul mean when he says to walk in wisdom toward unbelievers? You see, it's been said that wisdom is the application of knowledge. That knowledge lives in the head while wisdom lives in the heart. Knowledge is, is uh, understanding something. Wisdom is doing it, if you will. So knowledge understands what to do. When I'm driving to church and I see the sign that says 35 miles per hour, right? knowledge is knowing what to do. Wisdom is putting my foot on the brake. Right? So if you read through the book of Proverbs, you see the word wisdom over and over and over again. And in the same way, the book of James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it gives us a picture of wisdom. James 3, verses 13-17 through 17 says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior by his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So he says, who is wise and understanding, let him show his good behavior by his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You see, wisdom is more than just familiarity with some facts. For the believer, wisdom means more than just believing certain things about Jesus. It's more than just believing that some things about Jesus are true. It means living in light of those truths. It means living for His glory. You see, it should cause us pause when we read that Jesus said, some will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I never knew You. Depart from Me. That should cause us pause. To say, 
What do you mean some will say, Lord, Lord, on that day? And Jesus will say, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. See, it's not just about believing that Jesus is Lord or should be Lord, but instead, living with Him as your Lord. See, that's why Paul says, walk in wisdom. Apply what you know to be true. The point is that believers' lives are to be marked by wisdom. They are to apply the truth of Scripture to every area of their lives. Because the fear of the Lord, right, a reverence and respect for Him, is the beginning of wisdom. And this theme of wisdom runs throughout this entire letter to the church in Colossae. Again and again, Paul has spoken of the need for true wisdom. So I'm going to run through these verses real quick so we understand that this is not just here that Paul talks about it in Colossians 4, but throughout the whole letter he has talked about the need for true wisdom. Colossians 1.9 For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Colossians 2, 1-3, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and those who are at Laodicea, and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A true knowledge, a knowledge that leads to applying of what you know. Colossians 2, verses 20-23. through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. He's saying, you need to have real wisdom, biblical wisdom. And then he says in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, wisdom involves applying the truth of Scripture to your lives. And these false teachers were coming in. And they were saying, Jesus is great, but you need to do these other things. And Paul says, you need to look to the Scripture. Examine what the Scripture says, what God has revealed to you, and then live in obedience to what He has said. Apply what you know to your life. So when Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, he's saying that they should live in such a way that the world around them can see that their lives are marked by being pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. Right? That they should see that these things are what mark these people. Or as Paul so frequently said it in his other epistles, that they live lives worthy of the Gospel. You see, it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another to walk the walk. So as God's representatives, not only we're called to live wisely. We're called to live, but not only are we called to live wisely, 
But number two, point number two I want to draw out is that we are called to seize opportunities. As God's representatives, we are called to seize opportunities. Paul goes on and he says this. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity. And I realize that I'm still young, right? But the older I get, the more I realize that time is fleeting. I was, we had a conversation on the ride to church this morning. And I said, we were talking about kids, and I said, I said when I was in high school, I wasn't going to have kids until I was 35. And, uh, and Kim goes, you have two kids and you're not even there yet. And I go, I'm 35, honey. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You are. See, time is fleeting. It just goes by. I don't know how you get. It just goes by. It seems to go by faster and faster and faster with each passing year. And it makes me realize that life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. It's gone. Romans 11 says this, 11 through 14, Do this, knowing the time that it is already, already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You see, time is quickly vanishing and we need to live for Christ. The word in Colossians 4-5 translated making the most of the opportunity or making the most of means to redeem or to buy back. And one of the things that seemed extremely odd to me in our short time in Virginia was the fact that everybody threw away their soda bottles and their soda cans. Right? They, they didn't save them. They threw them away. Because for us, we think, that's five cents. What are you doing? Right? It's useful. It's valuable. And we take them to a redemption center. We redeem them. Because we recognize their value. We make the most of them. In the same way, we should recognize the value of the time we have and make the most of it. Don't waste it. Don't throw it away. Instead, we redeem it. You see, as believers, we should always, always, always be looking for opportunities to share the Gospel. A.W. Tozer said this, Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on as of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Or C.T. Studd, as if Tozer is not strong enough for us, said, we Christians too often substitute prayer for playing the game. Prayer is good, but when used as a substitute for obedience, it is nothing but a blatant hypocrisy, a despicable Pharisaism. To your knees, man. Go to your Bible. Decide at once. Don't hedge. Time flies. Loose your insults to God. Quit insulting flesh and blood. Stop your lame Lying and cowardly excuses and list. As God's representatives, 
We must seize opportunities. Time flies. As C.T. Studd said, time flies. So don't waste it. Redeem the time. So as God's representatives, we are called to live wisely. We're called to seize opportunities. And we are thirdly called to reflect God's grace. To reflect God's grace. Verse 6 goes on to say, Let your speech always be with grace. Paul is not speaking to preachers here. Um, but he's speaking to the entire church in Colossae. He says, always let your speech be with grace. And he, so he's speaking to everyone. And he also, he doesn't qualify his statement by saying, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, let your speech be with grace. Instead, he says, let your speech always be with grace. So what does he mean by that? To let your speech always be gracious or grace-filled. Does he mean that we should be gracious, as in pleasant or kind to people? That whenever we speak to somebody, we should be kind and pleasant to them? Well, of course he does. But Paul doesn't use the word grace so lightly. That Paul has something far, far bigger than that in mind. He's not just saying, when you talk to somebody, just be pleasant. And you know, there are times, i got to tell you, as a pastor, there are times in my life where I feel like saying that to the church. And I'm sure you see it in my life, but I, I feel like saying, when you talk to somebody, can't you just be pleasant? Right? This is not deep theology. This is something we learned in kindergarten. Be nice. Right? Be gracious. But Paul is saying that, yes, and so much more. You see, he has more than pleasantries in mind. He wants his readers to remember the grace they've been given through Christ. So when he says, let your speech always be with grace, he's saying, let your speech reflect the grace you've been given. You see, we haven't done the, the bottle illustration in a while, so in case you've missed it, right? This is what? It's a bottle of water, right? And... What's happening? Water's coming out. And why is water coming out? Because water's inside, right? So if we, what we need is we need when we're provoked, what should come out is grace. Because grace is what's inside of us. And, and it, we, I think the problem is that we forget the Gospel. And we're not gracious to other people because we've forgotten just how gracious God is to us. So when we can't forgive, guess what? We've completely forgotten how much Christ has forgiven us and continues to forgive us. It's not like I got up at 19 years old, said, you know what? I'm a sinner. I need to turn away from my sin. I need to follow Jesus. And Jesus forgave me for all that stuff for the first 19 years of my life. And I've been great since then. And I need to remember what He did all those years ago. No, it's I got up this morning and the alarm went off and my first thought was not, praise God, another day to glorify Him. My thought was, stupid alarm. Right? And, once, and before my feet have hit the ground, before I've said a word, before my eyes have opened, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm not thanking Him. I'm begrudging the life that He's given me. And in that, I need to realize that He just keeps heaping grace 
and more grace and more grace upon me. And when I realize that, I must be gracious toward others. So does that mean that we never correct? Right? That we never correct others? Well, certainly not. Uh, Instead, we must speak the truth in love. We must speak the truth to each other and to, to unbelievers as well. We don't judge them like we judge those inside the church. That's for God. But we do speak the truth. We don't say, oh, it's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. Just keep doing your thing and everything's going to be good. Instead, we must speak the truth. But we do so in love. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for the building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, part of giving grace is speaking truth. It is building people up and encouraging them in what is right. That is gracious. That's why we as believers, we need to remember the Gospel. I can stand up here and tell you again and again and again, you need to transform your speech. You need to be gracious toward others. You need to share the Gospel. But it's not going to generate any lasting change. You see, we don't need to make evangelism bigger. We need to make the Gospel bigger. And I believe that with all of my heart, that if if I just continue to make the Gospel big, to make the Gospel big, to help you see how much you've been forgiven in Christ, that evangelism will take care of itself. Because you will be like Peter and John and all the other disciples who said, because of what Jesus did for me, I can't keep my mouth shut. When we remember the grace we've been given in Christ, it's only then that we respond to others with grace. So Paul says, let your speech be with grace. Let your speech reflect the grace you've been given. So, let's review. So far, we've gotten through three points. Three points. We've got five points to go. So, or five points in total. So, Paul has said, as God's representatives, we are to live wisely. We are to seize opportunities. We are to reflect God's grace. And number four, we are to lift up the gospel. Paul says this, Let your speech always be with grace. We read that as though seasoned with salt. And I'm sure you've all heard the talk about salt and the purposes that it had in biblical times. Salt had three basic purposes. To be used as a preservative to keep things fresh. To be used as an antiseptic or to sterilize things. And to be used, thirdly, as a seasoning or to add flavor to something. So here Paul is clearly referring to salt's ability to season. Unlike other references in Scripture where the the connotation is different, here he's talking about adding flavor, seasoning something. Kim and I like to watch the Food Network once in a while, and one of the things that gets me, I can't cook anything, right? I tried to cook scrambled eggs the other day, and I dirtied like every dish in the kitchen, and the conclusion, the final conclusion at the end of that was, this is way too much work. I had three eggs, it took me an hour and a half, I dirtied every dish, I had to clean the whole kitchen, and here was the lesson that I learned. When you're hungry for eggs... Get Kim to do it. Or, if she's unwilling to do it, go to Moody's. Right, exactly. Where am I? Food Network. So we watch Food Network, and one of the things that seems to often come up is that they under-season their food. And I'm not a cook, but I know what's going to come out of one of the judges' mouths inevitably every single time. You didn't add enough seasoning. 
You see, just like salt brings out or it elevates the flavor of food, so our speech should elevate the gospel. It should make it appealing. That our speech should make the gospel appealing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Okay? I'm not saying, I'm not talking about gimmicks that appeal to people's fleshly desires. I'm not talking about churches that seek to entertain people with music or theatrics or lights or pyrotechnics or whatever else churches are doing these days. I'm talking about appealing to people's real needs. I'm not talking about appealing to fleshly desires by changing the message. right? Like those who we see on TV who say, God wants to bless you. He He wants to bless you. And He wants to give you prosperity. I'm talking about appealing to people's real need, the need to be reconciled to God, and the means through which God has made that possible, namely Christ's work on the cross. In other words, just like salt testifies to the greatness of steak, right? I love steak, right? And there's nothing like a good piece of steak, but what's better than a good piece of steak? A good piece of steak with some salt on it, right? <laughs> Just like salt testifies to the greatness of steak, so our speech should testify to the greatness of God's grace. It brings out the natural flavor. I love the following quote from John Piper. He says this, It's hard to salt your speech with the deliciousness of Jesus when you haven't been enjoying the taste yourself. So the wonderful thing about Paul's advice here is the best way to prepare to be an advertisement for the satisfying taste of Jesus is to enjoy Him yourself. Every day we should go to the Bible and look for reasons why knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And when we get up off our knees, our hearts are happy in Him, then we will be in our best position to make our speech appetizing for Christ. We've all seen it. People who are just, they don't make the gospel appealing. They're like, you should have seen what Jesus did for me. I was a miserable person. Look at me now, right? We should be thrilled with what Jesus has done for us. Our speech should lift up the gospel. And some will still reject it. We can't change that. But it doesn't change what we're called to do. We're not called to entertain people or to appeal to their perceived needs, we're called to share the gospel. We're called to be like Paul, who at the, close to the end of his life in Acts 20, 24 said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. May we be just as bold in proclaiming the gospel as Paul was. So as God's representatives, we're called to live wisely, to seize opportunities, to reflect God's grace, to lift up the gospel, and lastly, to be relational. Again, look at verse 6. Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The clear implication of this verse is that we are to connect with people on a personal level. We are to be relational. You see, evangelism is more than just about having the right answers. It's also about caring for people. The use of the word respond indicates there's an expected dialogue that's going to take place. And the response should be personal, not impersonal. You see, I can ask my smartphone questions, right? Where's the local, where's the nearest Dunkin' Donuts? I do this. I have a little 
um, voice app on my phone. Where's the nearest McDonald's? Whatever I want to ask my phone, it tells me. But the response is not personal, it's impersonal. You see, we are called to personally respond. Notice Paul doesn't say, so that you will know how you should respond. He says, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Ministry is personal. And it involves more than just memorizing a list of frequently asked questions. It involves investing in the person you're talking to and investing in in them enough to know how to respond in a way that is fitting. That's why 1 Peter says, Sanctify Christ as as, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and reverence. I heard a, one, a young man once say, who was in seminary, he said, I love ministry. I just don't like people. Right? And as believers, we are called to know how to respond to each person. You can't love ministry if you don't love people. I would argue you can't love Jesus if you don't love people. We are called to be relational. Now, for the sake of clarity, once again, I'm not talking about what some would call friendship evangelism, whereby we build a relationship with someone for the purpose of eventually, maybe, someday, almost getting around to saying something kind of spiritual, right? So when we build this relationship with them, and then we're like, oh, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been friends with them for 35 years. But you know what? The other day they sneezed and I said, God bless you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about concern for individuals so that you respond to them personally. I'm talking about seeing people as souls. Souls bound for an eternity in hell. This is an area you can pray for me. When I'm on a mission, I go to the store, I see people as obstacles sometimes. Right? It's like, get out of my way. i got a task i got to do. i got to get it done. And why is this person talking to my wife? Right? Who doesn't see them as obstacles? See, we need to see people as individuals, as people. As Charles Spurgeon said, he said this, yet another Spurgeon quote, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Personally, Because ministry, sharing the gospel, is relational. So as God's representatives, we're called to live wisely. We're called to seize opportunities. We're called to reflect God's grace. We're called to lift up the gospel. And we're called to be relational. So, here's the big question. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, it's pretty simple. We do those things, right? As individuals, we do those things. We are God's representatives. And if we cannot do those things, we need to step back and realize, have we forgotten the Gospel? Do we know the Gospel? Do we understand the Gospel? Because the Gospel motivates us to do these things. If you're a Christian, that's what you do. You live wisely. You seize opportunities. You reflect God's grace. You lift up the Gospel. And you're relational. And when you don't do those things, you need to step back and say, Maybe the issue is I'm not a Christian. 
Maybe I have no idea what it means when I say that Christ died for my sin. Or maybe we just need to be reminded. We need to lift up the Gospel in our own minds again. So number one, how do we apply this? Number one, we need to live wisely. We need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. See, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we need to do it all for the glory of God. We need to not just talk the talk. We need to walk the walk. Number two, we need to seize opportunities. Stop being so preoccupied. Right? We need to do this. Stop being so preoccupied with our own little kingdoms. And we need to live for His kingdom. Whether at work, the grocery store, right? or on the internet, whatever we do, we need to be seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. We need to seize opportunities. You see lots of people posting all kinds of things on Facebook. Very, very little that's edifying, that builds people up. I can post today, I could post, man, I ate too much candy last night, and I get 50,000 likes. I can post a Bible verse and I get two. But that shouldn't stop me from seizing those opportunities. Number three, we need to reflect God's grace. We need to remember the Gospel. We need to be heavenly minded. Remember what Christ did for us. And as we do, we need to live not for this world, but for the world to come. I hate when people say, well, that person's so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. That is the biggest bunch of nonsense I have ever heard in my life. As though we can be too heavenly minded? We need to live with, et- with eternity in focus. We need to reflect God's grace, remember what Christ has done for us, and then share that with others. That brings us to our fourth point. We need to lift up the Gospel. Let our speech testify what He has done for us in His grace. And number five, we need to be relational. We need to love people. We need to relate to them. We need to remember that such were once some of you. And by God's grace, He came into your life, used another person, more than likely, to speak truth into your life, to be relational to you. Praise Him for that. And we need to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy in our lives. God, I pray and ask that You be with us as we think about the call to be fishers of men. God, that it is not an optional call, but instead that as Christians, it's what we are to be because it's who we are. God, I pray that You'd help us to remember these principles, to live wisely, to seize opportunities, to reflect Your grace, to lift up the Gospel, and to be relational. God, that we would live out these principles, giving You glory and seeking the salvation of the lost. God, we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.